You are listening to Particular Pilgrims, stories from Reformed Baptist history with commentary. I'm your host, Ron Miller, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church of Clarksville, Tennessee, and a longtime student and collector of Particular Baptist history. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We have spent our last few episodes studying the Welsh Baptist beginnings, leaders, writings, and the move to the colonies. One of the most precious of their treasures, still possessed by us today, is the Ilston Records, also known as the Ilston Book. This is a record from the first church planted by John Miles at Ilston in Wales, and consists in three parts, a list of members, notes about church events he considered important, and finally transcripts of letters between churches. Miles brought the book with him to Plymouth Colony, and it continued to be used as the new Baptist church book at Swansea until 1844. So there is a Welsh part and an American part to the present records. The entirety of the Ilston, or Welsh portion, covers the period from October 1st, 1649, to the year 1653. There are additions to the list of members until 1660. The book is still encased in its original leather pouch with a clasp and the faint signature of J. Miles on the outside. It must have come with Miles to Swansea sometime between 1663 and 1666. It was held by the church for many years and then deposited in banks and other places. It has been lost and found. Since 1956, it has safely resided in a vault at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. The Welsh portion of the Ilston records are only about 30 pages long. It begins with, quote, the names of the brethren and sisters that were added to this church from the first on eight month, which was October 1st then, 1649. John Miles's name is first, followed by Thomas Proud, and 261 others. As I mentioned before, 153 members were women and 108 were men, about the usual ratio in particular Baptist churches of the time. Of course, we know very little about any of these people, but there are notations made alongside most of their names that give us some insight into church life at the time. First, of course, is that the names are overwhelmingly Welsh. First and last names you will hear over and over again in the history of Welsh Baptist life include Jones, Lloyd, Williams, Davies, Thomas, Griffith, Morgan, Evan, and James. And these surnames fill the Ilston list. They also fill the gravestones in the Baptist cemeteries around Philadelphia. Second, their town of residence is listed. Plotting these on a map shocks the system. There are scores of locations all across South Wales. The majority are in the Gower Peninsula west of Swansea, but many others are dispersed from the eastern border with England to the western coast. Getting from home to one of the few meeting places must have involved hours of travel by foot or animal. Indeed, one of the early changes made to the meeting time and place is recorded as follows, quote, 
The church taking serious consideration the great distances of most of the brethren and sisters one from another, this winter season do with one consent, declare and order, and then what follows is a description of a temporary rule that all would meet in Ilston once every three weeks on first day to have the Lord's Supper, and then the other two weeks they are to meet at several other places where is, quote, most convenient. When we consider that these largely poor people spent many hours each Lord's Day traveling in all kinds of weather and in a day when highwaymen were still common, it puts us to shame for any complaints about having to drive so far as a half an hour to worship. Third, the wide distribution of members shows how intrepid the preachers were. They must have repeatedly visited these places, preaching, baptizing, and organizing. The records constantly urge them to be sure to visit the various locations in order to feed the sheep of Christ. Again, their scriptural zeal is an excellent example for us. Fourth, the list notes many of the specific dates for baptisms and church membership. Clearly, these were important to them. Communion followed closely upon the requirement of immersion. And finally, the record of members lists those who experienced changes. Some members had, quote, fallen asleep. This, of course, was the touching scriptural way to describe those who had died in the Lord. Others were, quote, sent forth to preach. Still others were recommended to other churches when they moved. The second part of the Welsh records are more like selected church minutes. They include the usual topics, starting with discipline cases. In fact, the first entry lists the reasons that John Austin was put out of the church. For a year, he had been forcing himself on his maid, and then when she left his employ, he refused to pay her wages. He also, quote, sought to commit uncleanness with another maid, as he himself confessed. And he joined all these sins with unjust lawsuits. For these things, he was, quote, put out of the church. After a short time, he requested readmission to fellowship. But when he came back before the church for signs of repentance, he, quote, appeared full of self-justifying. He was not accepted back. Not all cases ended this sadly. William Thomas was charged with multiple grievous lies. Although he denied them, they were proven by witnesses, and so the church enjoined, quote, every brother and sister to note him as a disorderly walker and not to keep company with him that he may be ashamed. The only allowance to speak with him was if they were Quote, laboring to regain him out of Satan's snare. Three months later, Miles writes, quote, The Lord, having given unto our brother William Thomas repentance for those sins that he had committed and for which he was excluded from the society of the church, and the brethren being satisfied that he was much humbled and that his said repentance was real, our brother William Thomas was again received with much joy and satisfaction to the whole church. One member, Jenkin John, 
was delivered to Satan for continuing to worship under the superstitions of Roman Catholicism at a state church service. His faults were, quote, kneeling when he came into a public parish house to hear a sermon after he had been reproved for so doing another time, and, quote, for swearing by Mary in the presence of the church, and for, quote, passion when under reproof before the church. Their discipline was strict, and yet with some real patience. Also prominent in the records is a recognition of the need for more ministers. The distances and opportunities were great during the relative freedom of the 1650s. So the churches asked the Lord with fasting for, quote, such ministers as will soundly hold forth the word of truth. Men thought to possibly have gifts were regularly given opportunity to practice before the church. And if approved by the church, they were sent out wherever they desired to go. It's clear that they did not allow self-appointed preachers. The congregation's approval was absolutely necessary in order to preach, teach, baptize, or organize. They were concerned for God's honor if, quote, the weakest brethren were admitted to speak before the world. And so they decreed and ordered, that is their language, that, quote, no brother whatsoever preach or hold forth any doctrines before the world at any appointed meetings, but such as are approved by the church. Do you see the balance between aggressively training men for the ministry and the required recognition by the congregation? Strenuous attempts were made to properly schedule and pay men who were in office. Each church was even given an allotted amount to raise quarterly. There are frequent commendations to, quote, take special care to stop and quench all dividing principles. The goal was for them to, quote, be of one mind and one heart serving our God. Many of the letters between the churches had this as a major theme, to love one another and be at peace. Meetings were even appointed before the Lord's Supper to reconcile differences between members in accordance with the scriptures. And, of course, there were differences over doctrine and practice. The question of whether psalms should be sung was debated, as were questions concerning the laying on of hands. Since the Ilston congregation could not come to unity on these things, it was recommended that they write, quote, the said particulars to the consideration of the several churches. And the said churches should certify one another by letters what the Lord shall discover to them herein. So they jointly sought truth and peace. Another good example for us today. Interestingly, the record several times urges any members who are considering marriage or a change in their callings to seek the counsel of the church. They ordered that, quote, all difficult cases and before all marriages, the church's counsel be taken therein. This is wise advice that goes strongly against our modern individualism, but that if followed, has the potential for great benefit. If you'd like to read the Ilston book for yourself, there are several editions. Interestingly, they don't all contain all of the records or necessarily agree on every part. The best versions I've found are the Ilston book, Earliest Register of Welsh Baptists by B.G. Owens, 
published by the National Library of Wales. And secondly, Baptists in Early North America, Volume 1, Swansea, Massachusetts, published by Mercer University Press. It has an excellent historical introduction as well. Thank you for listening today. This is Ron the Baptist wishing you grace and peace.